If you're sitting in school right now and you want to change the world, what better way to do it than through what we eat, what we drink, what we purchase? If you want to be a part of innovation and disruption, there is no better place to be right now than retail. What do a love for music, education, and the exploration of Chinese markets have in common? Craig Ospo. As an adjunct professor at Portland State, he helps students understand the importance of consumer preferences and the power of women in the consumer packaged goods industry. As the co-founder of Koopman Ospo, a Portland-based branding agency, he helps brands such as Umqua and Bob's Bread Mill understand how to stay relevant and fresh in an ever-changing industry. As a musician, he helps people appreciate the lovely sounds of Tom Petty in his own way. He's a passionate, knowledgeable, and excited marketer whose love for sustainability and innovation has helped define his career. But what led him to go from touring across the country to working in marketing? What are his tips for finding your passion? And what advice does he have for those looking to change careers or break into the industry in the first place? All of this and more, this time, on How I Got Here. So Craig, where did you grow up? Where did I grow up? I grew up in Marysville, Washington. Okay. Which at the time was this really cool, uh, would I say backwater, the way people might refer to it? Yeah, backwater. Very small little burg. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like you'd picture someone growing up in the 50s or 60s. Um, literally the kind of place that if I wanted to go shoot my brother's shotgun, I could ride down the middle of the main drag with my shotgun, my brother's shotgun, on my 10-speed, out of its hold, out of its case, and the police would just wave at me because they knew I'd been in gun class. Yeah. And as a 15-year-old, you had a gun permit. You could. Do, it was that kind of town. If you did that today, <laughs> I can't even imagine. You'd be on the news. You'd be on the news. Yeah. That's, that's for sure. <laughs> and little Marysville... Washington, when they built uh, the 747 plant, Boeing did at Payne Field, which was in Everett, just five miles away, suddenly Marysville became a very big little town. Uh, it became not only a Seattle, uh, Seattle uh, bedroom community, I think is the way you'd refer to it, but also a Payne Field bedroom community. A lot of people moved in to build 747s, and we suddenly went from this one little high school to two high schools and on and on. So what was a small town became kind of a bigger town. I, I love school. I mean, I don't, my, if my parents, God rest their souls, were alive, they might disagree with that, that <laughs> I don't want to go to school today. But I, I don't know. I, I had great teachers. I remember them fondly. Uh, I can name most every one uh, from kindergarten on. Uh, it was just that great small community. And school was a place you went to hang out with your friends, mm-hmm. too. And I, I really feel uh, I got such a great education in the 12 years, and not counting kindergarten, that I went to school. In other words, I, I feel in many cases sometimes that the education I got in high school um, is equal to what I see a lot of students coming out of college. Certainly not PSU, because I get a chance to not only teach there, uh, but also we have a very engaged student body from all over the world, and a very mixed student body and diverse student body, which I absolutely adore, uh, and getting to know them and meet them. But I will admit I've hired uh, people within Koopman Ospo where I went, oh my goodness, you have a college degree? And when I see their writing skills, mm-hmm. an example, their communication skills, and I felt I came out of high school with a very good education before I entered into college. So I enjoyed it. And of course, I was into music. And we had a great music program and sports programs. So what's not to like? Right, exactly. I think a lot of the time people going into college nowadays expect that that's going to be like their finishing school yeah. when they should be prepared way ahead before college. Yes. People kind of come in and assume, oh, this is where I'm going to learn how to write and how, how to speak. And if you don't have some of those basic skills before you come to college, it's very difficult. Yes. And I've seen people who, you know, especially with some of the lower level classes, they really struggle because they never 
took the time to actually practice mm-hmm. during high school. I feel like high school is college practice, essentially. I think so. It, it teaches you how to learn. And mm-hmm. we'll often say college is that, too. College teaches you how to learn in a work environment. Exactly. And and how to if you don't know how to do something, how to do it. And college teaches you how to work in teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, college is great because it teaches you how to work in teams you don't want to work with. Because <laughs> that's the real life sometimes. Yeah, that's real life. You know, so how do I get empathetic with this individual? and learn how to work with them instead of saying, boy, they're hard to work with. And college really teaches you that. And I think, too, if you, and and I would say today, many people coming out of high school would say, I had wonderful teachers who really cared. And I think that was the difference. In other words, it was very difficult to slip through the cracks in Marysville, Washington. Yeah. We had 300 and some in our graduating class, so we weren't a tiny high school. But trust me, those teachers knew how you were doing and they were working with you if you were having issues and they were challenging you when they knew that you were capable of much more and they wouldn't give up on you. Oh, I'd love to hear that. I think that just made such a huge difference having that type of teacher in every class. Yeah. So kind of going back to the music thing, I know it's a huge part of your life, but do you mind kind of elaborating on the story of your involvement with music? Sure. Well, my father... Uh, was a woodwind player and had grown up in the big bands. Um, However, it was an avocation, something he loved to do. When uh, my parents had their first child, my older brother, um, my dad, I think my mom felt like she made him quit, which is why she was probably such a huge supporter of my music career, (laughs) guilt. Yeah. Uh, They were both just amazingly supportive of my music. So I grew up around music. Uh, My dad... Uh, before he went to Alaska and helped build the communication systems in Alaska. Uh, And then my mother moved up there after we all graduated. Before that, he was a TV repairman, which meant we had access to the best stereo gear and everything. So while we were very, I would say, poor, we had a killer stereo system. That's all you need. We had the best. I mean, Macintosh amplifiers, clipshorn speakers in the corner of the house. We had speakers that were bigger than the living room, I think. (laughs) And so we would just blast music. And my dad, every album that he had was big band jazz. So I grew up falling in love with drummers like Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich and Louis Bellson and all these names that mean nothing now, but were with <laughs> Benny Goodman and Tommy Dorsey and you go on and on uh, down through the big bands. I grew up on big band music. So it was a natural step for me as I began to play to go into jazz band in high school. And our high school had a new band director come who decided we needed to start a jazz band the first year that I went to high school, and we were the first freshman class mm-hmm. in high school. So we were the first four of the four, what would now be a four-year high school. Yeah. And we could join jazz band, and he was brand new, and we were all brand new to the high school. So I was the first drummer in the jazz band oh my gosh. and had this opportunity to, to grow up in the music program of uh, high school, which was touring and doing competitions everywhere and competing against other schools and meeting all these other musicians you're competing against and entering these competitions with a band and and it was just a a a blast yeah and my band director uh singled me out and said um i think you can play professionally would you like to play with me and some of my guys we do weekend gigs we do this and that so i'm I, I was the, one of the youngest, if not the youngest kid in my class. Yeah. Um, I was so tall as a kindergartner. <laughs> my mother put me forward. <laughs> so I should have been class of 72, which dates me. I was class of 71 because I was so tall yes. as, uh, in kindergarten. And uh, uh, what that really meant was uh, I couldn't even drive until I was a junior you know, yeah. in, in high school, which meant my parents had to haul my drums around, which... Uh, is what literally my mom said at one point, uh, if you'll join jazz band, I'll drive you down there and I'll get you a new drum set. Well, that was easy. That's incentive. That was a good incentive. Well, that uh, band director then asked me if I would play with, uh, you know, with his group, if you will, of musicians doing casuals, which meant that uh, either mom had to drive me to the gig or they had to come pick me up. Uh, but they got me into music union at a very young age. I think I was 15 when I was in the music union and started playing uh, gigs professionally. Uh, so the band director had a lot of influence there in bringing me into what would be considered a professional music. 
Yeah. It's, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Almost Famous, but it's about this like 15, 16 year old kid who follows yeah. bands and like starts writing about them. And like, no, I think back in, in like in the 70s and 80s, kids were treated a bit differently. They were given more independence. Yes. So for you to like go and play these awesome gigs with a bunch of adults as a 15 year old must have felt like, oh my gosh, like imposter syndrome almost. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it seriously uh, did. And yeah. you're right. We didn't think much about it as far as we were with it. In other words, your parents never drove you to a baseball game or practice. No. In fact, I remember my dad coming to one game. He was busy, and I didn't think anything about that. He was incredibly supportive. Hey, how's ball going? Yeah. You know? But parents didn't show up to games. You just got on your bike and you rode to the game. And it was a fun thing that yeah. you did with your friends and you went home. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And yeah. You went home, and if it's dark, you told your parents, I'll be home after dark. I mean, but again, small town. Mm-hmm. You're growing up very different than maybe a, a, a big urban environment yeah but yes it was a blast playing with these guys and so many of the places I played I couldn't be in there when the band wasn't playing so I always had to go sit in the dressing room or go sit somewhere else because yeah. I'm not old enough to be in the bar right. but I was old enough to play because I was in the music union I love which is it. the important part yeah and so after you started playing in high school did you consider that you were like this is what I'm going to do like I'm going to be a musician or did you have kind of second thoughts about it I felt very seriously I wanted to be a professional musician. Um, my parents would say there was only three things I ever talked about being in my life. A professional musician, an airline pilot, and a businessman. You got two out of three. I, I mean, did. that's pretty great. Well, and I got my pilot's license, I think, at 17, oh 18. I can't remember. Um, I was big into flying and, yeah. and thought that that would uh, be a career. But at that time, again, I've already dated myself. Um, guys were coming out of Vietnam mm-hmm. with jet time and with helicopter time. And you're competing... Uh, if you didn't go to Vietnam and didn't go to war, didn't go to the service, you're competing with guys with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours. And so my dean of students at the community college uh, had been a fighter pilot and had flown for uh, Western Airlines, which became Alaska Airlines, yeah, yeah. if you will, and emerged. And he talked me out of it. He just said, unless you want to spend an ordinate amount of money. In fact, I remember the conversation. He goes, do you love to fly? And I go, oh, God, yes. He goes, don't be an airline pilot. <laughs> now, anyone out here listening to this is an airline pilot. I'm sure they disagree, but that's what he said. He just made the rational argument, Craig. It's a lot of hours unless you want to join the service. Mm-hmm. And so I decided uh, I'd put that vocation on the side, and I'd think about both music and being a business person. Yeah. And so it made a lot of sense back then because I was already doing it. Mm-hmm. In fact, way back in the day, um, I was getting paid during high school for three nights of work at the Elks Club, what my girlfriend's mother was making all week long at the dentist office. Oh, my gosh. So I thought I was rich. Yeah. I was 15 <laughs> years old. Yeah. Thinking, uh, so this seemed like a good life mm-hmm. at the time. Right. Oh, my gosh. So when you you graduated high school, um, did you go, what was your college situation? Or did you go to college? Yes. Okay. So uh, I had every intent of University of Washington, but I did not apply to be a freshman at the University of Washington because I had every intent of going to Everett Community College, doing two years and then transferring to the University of Washington, which I did. Mm-hmm. And was accepted Foster School of Business. And it... Uh, ECC finished about the end of May, the quarterly system. And I couldn't sign up for classes at the UW until September. And you remember I said I competed in yeah. jazz band. Yeah. I got a call from three of the musicians from a local high school who I competed against. And subsequently, we had some of us played together in the community college jazz band. Gotcha. Which we had a very famous musician beating. So we had a blast in that jazz band. And I had played several, anytime a famous artist came to Everett, Washington, I would generally be in the pit orchestra, playing drums or doing something. Because again, I'm in the union and one of the players. Um, So I got to know these guys over time, even though we were competitors, and they joined a band, a Holiday Inn band, a touring band, if you will, going on the road and playing the Holiday Inn circuit. And they called me up and said, hey, what are you doing for the summer? 
And I said, well, nothing. I'm just waiting to go to the UW and, and playing gigs. They said, you want to join this band and join us on the road? I said, we're with these really, really, really old guys. <laughs> I said, how old are they? And they go, 32. <gasps> oh, my uh, God. That's ancient. Ancient. Because <laughs> at that time, we rage in age. From I was 19. Yeah. I was the oldest. There was another 19. And then uh, one of them was 17 uh, right out of high school. We thought 32. My God. You got to be dead by then. <laughs> I remember that well. That phone. So I went on the road for the summer. Mm-hmm. That was the intent. Yes. Well, you can only imagine what it's like being 19 years old and being on the road and playing all over the country. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I had the time of my life. Yeah. It was so much fun. And we had so much fun together. And 32 turned out to be not so ancient. They were great guys. Yeah. And a real valuable learning lesson from some pros that had, you know, been around and done it all and had great advice. And also, in looking back, uh, you could tell they probably had a conversation with our parents. Don't worry. We'll watch out for them. They won't get in any trouble. Right. Which we surprisingly didn't. Oh, really? But I didn't think about it until later. They had probably had a stern talking to by our parents. <laughs> Please don't kill our children don't on the road. Don't kill our children Please on do the not road. leave them in the side of the road in San uh, New yes. Mexico. Yes. And all the things that you can imagine come with me. Being a musician came and oh yeah and they were pretty they were fun guys um we certainly got in our own little versions of trouble but it was pretty safe yeah when i look at uh, today so i went on the road for the summer and then the summer came and went and UW had written me and said, it's time to sign up for classes because I'm an incoming junior. Mm-hmm. So as an incoming junior, I don't get to pick my classes until everyone else has. Oh. Right? Yeah. Because right. I wasn't a sophomore. Exactly. So I don't get that special. Okay. And so I was going to get the dregs of the classes mm-hmm. anyway, whatever happened. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until September I could sign up. So now I had to decide, uh-oh, I got to sign up for classes. And, um, am I going to go back? Am I going to do this? Because I, I really wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now I had this big decision to make. You know, I'm on the road. I'm making good money. Rent's free. You yeah. get free holiday in rooms. You know, you're, you get a lot of free food. Yeah. You know, What's I'm, to dislike? I'm making money that? thinking I'm rich. Yeah. <laughs> you know? What's to dislike about this or should I go and finish the final two years? Mm-hmm. So what did you do? Well, I called my parents and said, I have one day between uh, Coeur d'Alene and Reading. I'm going to come through Seattle, and we need to have the talk. And so I went home and expecting to have the talk and and very much expecting my parents to say, "Uh, you know, Craig, it's only... 18 months mm-hmm. until you graduate. It's not two years. Right. In 18 months, you have your degree. And I would have been the first in my family with a degree. And you have your degree. Because my brother was in the service gotcha. at this time, my older brother. And then came back, finished his degree at UW. Because, again, <laughs> you grew up in Washington, you bleed purple. you got to oh, remember, yeah. when I grew up, no Mariners, right. no Sonics. no. No Seahawks. It was all UW. It's UW, 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 UW. You yeah. bleed purple. I love and it. I still bleed purple. Mm-hmm. So it's just, in fact, that's why I went to Linfield. That's my alma mater. As yeah. you know, I graduated from Linfield because they're purple and I didn't have to change my wardrobe. Perfect. Perfect. Honestly, if that's the way I was going, that makes sense. I went from blue and gold to green and white and it totally messed up it my totally entire wardrobe. totally messed up your wardrobe, doesn't it? <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I got I mean, game day. Right. What am I going to do? I'm not even that big into sports, but yeah. like I have to have one jersey that matches the rest of my closet. Exactly. Well, that's me. It's all purple. Exactly. All purple all the time. I should have done that. So, so I, you know, I expected them um, just to provide that rationale, but literally they they surprised me, and and I give them credit for this, and it's and, and honestly, I've tried to remember this in raising my own children. My mom said, um, "Well, Craig Stephen." Uh, by the way, when they get serious, they use your middle name. Yeah. That's my middle name. Craig Stephen. So, Craig Stephen, what do you want to do? I said, you know what, Mom? I'm conflicted. I'll be honest with you. I'm conflicted. And she said, well, do you want to finish your degree now? Uh, or do you want to stay on the road? And I said, well, I want to do both. 
But let's remember, there's no online. I was just about would to say. Would have been a piece of cake. I oh. probably would have got my master's while I was in the Holiday Inn. You exactly. Know? Would have been a piece of cake. It wasn't. <laughs> and she said, okay, Craig Stephen, I want you to pretend you are a 40-year-old, knowing in her mind, that's like ancient mm -hmm. at the time, professional musician, successful. And I said, what's success? She says, whatever you think it is. You're a 40-year-old successful musician. Will you look back on this moment, this decision, had you chosen to go into music and say, gee, I wonder what if I had finished my degree or had I done this or done that. And I said, well, no, I'm, I'm going to finish my degree. This isn't about finishing a degree. This is about a choice of what to do. Okay, okay. <laughs> now you're a 40-year-old successful businessman. You went back to school. That's all you've ever talked about. You're successful, whatever that means to you. Will you look back on this and say, I wonder if I had to stay on the road as a musician? And I said, yes. Mm -hmm. She said, there's your answer. God, I love that. Supportive Follow parents are where it's at. I think Can more... Can believe that? No, I, I think that's a very rational way of proposing yeah. it as well. Like... You know, you can do both, yes. but are you going to regret not doing one? Yes. And that's awesome. And then after that, you continued touring. Off I went. Yeah. <laughs> right back at road. it. Ended up in Los Angeles, ended up living in Los Angeles, and the rest is history. Yeah. Like, yeah. Do you have any crazy, memorable moments that are appropriate for a podcast? Hmm. You know, I have many that are not. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would just say... Um, I really feel if someone else is listening to this and they feel, I need a gap year. I need, I need time to really reflect and think on what I want to do. I know I want to complete this. I know the wisdom in what school will provide me. Um, I also think there's a wonderful opportunity now where they go, I want to take the next year and do some classes online because I'm going to go to Europe and I'm going to do this. Yeah. Or I need to do this. I just know I need to see this. Or I want to go teach ESL before I get, or I want to, all I'm saying, all I would say to them is do it. Mm -hmm. Do it. Don't regret it. Yeah. Do it. You don't know where it's going to lead. And life in general isn't about making a decision at 19 or 17 or even 23 and making a decision. Um, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? For God's sake, you have no idea, and neither does anyone else, you know, what you're going to do the rest of your life. So take that opportunity to, if you need a gap year, take the gap year. Or if you need to do something a little different, do it. Or if you're just having a tough time deciding what to major in, major in something that appeals to you because you're there to learn how to learn. Mm -hmm. I promise you, whatever you major in, it's doubtful that will be your career. Because too many other things will come to you. Yeah. And you'll have too many other things to choose from. So at least enjoy four years and being in debt. <laughs> exactly. Well, if you're going to go in debt, know why you're doing it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And if you need a break, take the break. Mm -hmm. Or if you want to take, if you want to do it, maybe it's wise to spend a year in Europe while you're taking classes online. My daughter finished her degree in Berlin. Yeah. With Linfield here. Uh, taking some online classes that allowed her to walk and then pick up class finished and they sent her her degree. I mean, there's just a lot of ways that you can do that. Yeah. I think people assume that you have to follow the four year path and then you have to walk and then you have to have a job. Like there's so many different pathways and that's a lot of what this podcast mm -hmm. is, is talking to people and understanding that it's not a cut and clear path. And it shouldn't be because you don't learn anything if you just live your life easy. You know, sometimes you have to go to Europe for a year and figure out like, hey, maybe I really don't want to do business. Maybe I want to do art history. Right. And there are people who do that and are very successful. And it's, you know, I think there's this myth that if you major in something practical, you're going to make a lot of money. <laughs> it's not necessarily true. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of friends in psychology and they know, like, unless I'm going into social work or unless I'm going into, you know, working as a clinical psychologist, like, there isn't a whole lot for me to do in that field. But I love it. And I love understanding people. And there's so many things I can do with that. You know, I, I, I'm reminded in listening to you of Mike Rowe, the guy from Dirty Jobs, and the yes. guy who's on the Ford commercials in a line. I know I'm probably not going to get this right, but I absolutely love this concept. He says, 
Don't follow your passion. Take it with you. Yes. Just take it with you. I love that because I felt that when I decided to stay as a musician, the passion was for what I was doing. There's so much behind music. You know what happens when you're on as a band. You know it's a feeling no one else gets to feel unless they've been in a band. But you also know what's happening to the audience. When you're creating this moment for them that's magical, that'll never be there again, and you're doing that, and you're creating that. And it's, a, it's not because you played the greatest lick in the world that no other drummer has ever played. It's because you communicated with them. You created a feeling and an emotion. And if you think about that, then how easy was it for me to get into marketing? Yeah. Just look at the two and, and what they are, what music does. It, it speaks to you emotionally. There's an IQ element of it. Yeah. It's math. Yeah. And there's a big EQ element of it. It's emotion. Mm -hmm. There's relevance. Hey, I want to hear some music. And then there's resonance. Oh, wow. That affects me emotionally. Mm -hmm. That's music. That's marketing. That's branding. That's communications. That's many other things. Yeah. I think connecting with people on... I mean, that's why I think art is so important. That's why I think when people mm -hmm. say like, oh, well, you're doing this degree, like, do you even like marketing? It's like, I like people. I think people are very interesting mm -hmm. and I want to pick their brains and learn why they like or dislike the things they do. And you can do that with any genre of music, any genre of film, any type of art. Mm -hmm. Like, why do people like Basquiat over, you know, I can't think of another artist. That was bad. <laughs> Van Gogh. Van Gogh. Um, I think it's really interesting that you you see it that way because I agree with that, and I think a lot of people don't. I think I think it's a, a thing you have to realize yourself. Like whether you're going into finance, psychology, marketing, there's a connection to a person. Whether you see that person or they're just data on an Excel sheet, there are people involved. So I think people feel connected in that way. They think like what I'm doing has a purpose. What I'm doing will affect people, hopefully in a good way. Um, and there's obviously IQ, you have to understand how to even do that process, mm -hmm. but you also have to understand and empathize with your consumer mm -hmm. and you have to say, mm, okay, they probably don't want this. So I'm not like, why would I even waste my time doing that when I know this is what they want and mm -hmm. I know this will benefit them. And when you break down marketing in that way of just understanding people and then applying that knowledge in a strategy, it's pretty easy to understand. It is. It is. And you said it. That ability to be empathetic, not sympathetic, mm -hmm. is so key in, well, in almost any form of business. If you can truly walk in their shoes, not just try and understand what it's like to be them, be them. Mm -hmm. Put yourself in that situation. Define whatever it is that you are trying to help them understand or help them do or help them buy or help them learn from walking in their shoes and seeing what their need is, what their purpose is, and then speak to them from a point of empathy mm -hmm. and create your point of view from there, not sympathy, mm -hmm. then it's going to resonate, right? It's already relevant. People need to eat or people need shoes or people need a the relevancy is maybe an easy part of it. The resonance, mm -hmm. that empathy, that emotional connection, that's where that comes from. And I can't imagine that that's not more important today than it even was back when I was making that decision. Because if you, if you think back then, there were only maybe so many types of industries that you might go into. Because the disruption was, oh, I can get on a plane now and be in New York for a meeting tomorrow. That was a disruption when I was a kid. Think of the disruption now in every facet of every business, including my business. Mm -hmm. How many channels are there now to communicate? How many ways are there to communicate? When I was growing up and going into marketing, primarily you pitched Hopefully you were empathetic. Yeah. Hopefully you had done your research mm -hmm. and you were speaking to the consumer who you wanted to buy your product yeah. about something that was relevant or resonant with them. But let's face it, it was a one-way communication. We did all of our research and hoped we got it right and then we pitched them on radio, television, print. Mm -hmm. Pretty much it. Yeah. Today, the consumer's in control. The consumer is driving the message. The consumer is telling you whether they believe it or not. And the consumer with their phone, can destroy your brand in one second. 
That's or so scary. a nanosecond. Right. Yes. However long it takes to hit a dislike button. Yes. <laughs> so how important is the relationship with the consumer? And really, truly meeting them where they are and understanding their power. And then if you're a college student, how important is it for you to realize the job you're going to do hasn't been invented yet? It hasn't. No. If you're a freshman or a sophomore in college, the job you're going to do has not been invented yet. And whatever job you do, the next job hasn't been invented yet. That's how fast we're moving. That's how fast we're moving. So it really is far more about what emotionally moves me. Mm-hmm. What makes me want to jump out of bed every day and can't wait to get there and can't wait to learn. Because whatever it is emotionally that moves you, that's going to be there. That's not going to be reinvented. No. However, the way it manifests itself or the way you get to manifest it into an occupation or something you do, just hasn't been invented yet. Right. Oh, that's kind of, that's a very nihilistic perspective and I kind of love it. Um, so kind of moving into, I mean, you obviously were speaking about branding and marketing and your position here at Koopman Ospo, but could you kind of go in and talk to us about how Koopman Ospo even came to be? So after you graduated from Linfield with your degree, um, what was, what was your life like after that? So Linfield, let me, let me clear that up right away. In 2015, I walked across the stage at Linfield College with my daughter. We graduated together. Oh, yes. Yeah. I love it. So online had come to play. Um, I was now, I had a successful business at KO. I had studied school after school after school after school looking for where would I uh, go back and take some, uh, really what I was interested in was finance. Mm. Um, not finance as a degree, but I wanted to take more higher level finance classes than I'd been able to take my first two years or I could just go audit. Yeah. And that wasn't of interest in me. Um, so I began looking at, at all the local institutions, all the online institutions, because I wanted to sharpen my finance skills. Um, so I discovered Linfield um, in that uh, their online program allowed me to be just like you are right now at PSU. You choose your classes, you choose your electives. You choose your study abroad if you're in international business like I was. Mm-hmm. You, and you, get to, you can either choose a program that already exists to go abroad or you can create your own. And so there were these opportunities for me to really live out my business while I was going back and sharpening my business skills and having to do something I'd never had to do, a college-level language class, oh, which yeah. sounded like hell. And that, you know, my brain was just going to be... Because at my age, and literally after 16, I yeah. think the figure is, your brain starts to lose the ability to just naturally learn, and it becomes memorization. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be memorization no matter what. <laughs> but I chose uh, Linfield because of that. They were going to allow me... Um, to be just like, it was like I went back to college, but I was doing it online, but they're right here, yeah. they're right here in Portland. So right, I was right. out there uh, all the time. And eventually I, they asked me, even while I was a student, to join the Business Advisory Council, which advises on curriculum and other elements. And so I was very engaged with the institution and loved it. And when I had my daughter come back from San Diego and finish uh, at Linfield, it just became this perfect opportunity to gee, maybe we could walk together. Yeah. And I knew I was going to be done. We didn't know if she would because she had to do quite a few credits mm-hmm. in a year because she had a deadline with Germany. She was going to be gotcha. a date with Germany, I should say. Yes. She was going to be there. She's fluent. She's been there the last four years or, yeah, since 15. She left right after college graduation and has been there ever since. Um, marketing, I've already talked about how it connects to music. And when I wanted to stop touring and stop traveling and build a recording studio because I was starting to write music for long-form video and for commercials and whatever. As audio and video began to merge in the digital domain, meeting MIDI, the musicians out there would know what that is, musical instrument digital interface. And as video was merged, and as we were suddenly able to, a guy like me that can't play piano, um, but can knows the notes and the chords, can through MIDI play into a computer one note at a time at any speed he wants and then it plays back a whole orchestra. So I was creating a lot of music for commercials or whatever and that's literally how I found my way into marketing. And then went, oh my God, 
I fell in love. Yeah. I just went, it's left brain and right brain. It filled both sides of me. And I made an immediate decision. My vocation was going to become my avocation and marketing was going to become my vocation. And so I joined a firm. I was uh, their uh, director of marketing. And when we moved up here, they allowed me to keep the job for a year and look for a job. And it was during that time that I met Ken Koopman, uh, who had his own PR firm. And I had joined another little agency uh, to help them rebuild and started working with Ken. And we really liked working together. So in 1994, we launched Koopman Ospo and uh, decided that we would venture out on our own and to see what the world held for us. Yeah. As uh, At the time, we literally, on our little napkin marketing plan, said it didn't matter to us whether we became a communications firm or a marketing firm, a PR firm, or an ad agency. You know, We knew that we covered all those disciplines, but what would the market bear? Yeah. You know, it was really an experiment uh, because he, being a PR guy, was hiring me because his clients needed more than just PR. And I was hiring him because we were doing advertising and said we did PR, but we didn't do PR like he did PR. Exactly. And he was a former Oregonian reporter and brilliant, great writer. And so we just came together to merge these things and see what will the world hold. Uh, very soon after that, a very fortunate circumstance um, happened for us. And it came in the form of a client giving us a brand new office suite, a building that just opened right across from the Heathman downtown called 1000 Broadway. And at the time when it opened, there was a concierge in the Ooh. lobby. And our client was Hillman Properties, and Hillman Properties owned it. And an incredible man, our client named Jim Edwards, said, I want to give you guys free rent. Sorry, Jim, if this gets you in trouble. But <laughs> and we went, what? He goes, I think you should come over here and start. I, I like you guys, and I believe in you, and... and it's our client. So we got free rent in the nicest building in Portland. Corner offices oh my overlooking downtown. Windows. <laughs> Don Draper has nothing on that. Yeah, seriously, we were like in Don Draper's office, but no furniture. Oh. We didn't own a thing. <laughs> we didn't have, as a, my mother would say, a pot to pee in. Yes. I mean, there was nothing. So we put my ping pong table in the lobby thinking it looked cool. Yeah. That's all we had. Yeah. We bought everything in Jim's closet uh, for 150 bucks, and that was like an old copy machine. This desk, your microphone is on right now. Oh this gosh. exact desk in Kim's office, that's where we are, um, was in that closet. This is a beautiful desk. We've had this like <laughs> since the beginning. Yeah. This was Ken's desk, and it was in the closet. So Jim gave us office rent, and it wasn't too long after that that we eventually started paying a lease, and Jim knew that we would. And uh, a young lady we were very close with um, uh, wanted to start her business in auto racing mm. and uh, basically managing... Uh, auto races, specialty races, like the Norm Thompson historic races, yeah. uh, car races. Ken and she had worked together in the G.I. Joe's 200, which back when there was G.I. Joe's, it was the IndyCar series. Yeah. And so she worked for the company that promoted it, and he did the PR for it. And So uh, her name was Jill, and we knew Jill quite well. And Jill wanted to start her own business. And we just jumped at the chance to say, come live with us. Come live with us. Here's your office. Use all our stuff. Yeah. Stay as long as you want. We need to pay this favor forward. It's because that's how we had gotten our start. Right. So Jill moved in and she was so pleased and so gracious. Her husband worked for a gentleman named Junkie Yoshida. And Junkie was looking for a PR firm. And Jill, of course, said, well, Junkie, there's only one. Kuman Ospo. So Junkie became our client on Jill's recommendation. Jill also worked with uh, Horst Mager, who owned the Rhinelander Gustav restaurants at the time, now owned by Suzanne Mager, uh, his daughter. And Horst hired us on her word. And then a guy who loved to race his car in the historic races had started a little company called Kettle Chips. And he had talked to her about uh, need, the needs for a PR firm, finally, yeah. uh, advertising agency. Uh, his name was Nerbo Kalsa, 
before, I mean, um, at that time he was a Sikh. And his name now, of course, is Cameron Healy. And he started Kettle Chips. And Cameron, God bless him, in the first year of our business said, you guys need to come to this thing called the Natural Product Show. What's that? (laughs) He says, this is trade show in Anaheim with natural products. And that was the beginning of it all. Within a year of our business, those three clients in the food business and especially the natural products business. And we were very fortunate that Kettle was part of a group of natural products firms that would share ideas and thoughts and who's doing your distribution, who's your broker here and who's your whatever there. And they would get together and they all shared our name. And so very soon we were all of their agency, agency of records. So before we knew it overnight, we always say we were never smart enough to see this amazing trend of natural, organic, and sustainable products coming. Mm -hmm. But when we walked through the door of the Anaheim Convention Center, we were smart enough to know where we were. Yes. And that was the beginning and has been our business for 25 years. And so can you just name some of the companies for reference for other people that you work with right now? Sure. In fact, even the ones that started then were Kettle Chips, Bob's Red Mill, Pacific Foods, Nature's Path, Ease Veggie Cuisine, Stretch Island Fruit Leather. The seventh group in the group of seven, as they call them, our seventh client was Cascadian Farms, who very shortly after that sold to General Mills. Yeah. And then I'm working right now with Beaverton Foods, work with Franz, work with, I mean, the list goes on and on. We've been very, very, very fortunate and very blessed. And those are all delicious products that I yes. highly endorse. Yes, fan. me too. <laughs> so kind of moving into the natural path towards China, mm-hmm. um, could you quickly elaborate on the e-commerce, I guess, um, revolution that's happening in China? And We're definitely way behind them. Yes. I think that's something that you've mentioned quite yes. a lot. Um, could you just touch on that? Because I think it's just so interesting. Certainly. So again, at the time that I went back to Linfield, I had this fortuitous opportunity to uh, hear Bob at Bob's Red Mill. Mm-hmm. We uh, did this thing we used to all attend called the State of the Mill. And at that, Bob talked about um, wanting to be international, his desire to be international. And I got so turned on by it. I was literally, I told you, a finance major yeah. or a management major where I could take finance classes. I called my advisor immediately after the meeting and said, I'm going to get an international business degree. I see the path. I see the clear. And she said, you know, it's going to take a couple more years. Now you got to take foreign language. And I, go, I don't care. This isn't about the, the degree I want to learn. And so what Bob saw that a lot of brands, um, some saw and, and many still today don't, was the market opportunity to deliver a safe, clean, authentic, pure, transparent, trusted product mm-hmm. is way outside the borders of the United States of America. Mm-hmm. We're very, very fortunate as Americans that we have a choice of what we want to eat every mm-hmm. time we want to eat. And we can choose to eat our favorite indulgence, our guilty pleasure, uh, or choose to eat something that is really, really good for us that today, because uh, so much is known about how to make it taste like our guilty pleasure, it's a guilty pleasure in a natural, organic, sustainable form. Yeah. And tastes wonderful. Well, we're not alone on this planet. There were 320 million. Add Canada, we go a little over 400 million. Well, there's 7 billion out there Mm -hmm. and many of them are gaining in disposable income and I would argue the first thing any human being does when gaining some choice in disposable income is they make decisions about health and the health of their family Mm -hmm. and let's face it if you've ever been in one of the classes I taught or whatever you're gonna tell you you're gonna know I'm going to say it's about her it's about mom it's about her it's about her as a single woman She controls all the money in America. She's 85% of the influence of the purchase decision. Globally, 65%. She's very powerful. Mm -hmm. And she's going to be making decisions about health. The health of her family, the health of her children, her own health, whatever. And so, guys, you know, I I tend to say, yeah, you know, guys, the other 15%, she just lets you think you had an opinion. (laughs) But, you know, guys are obviously making that decision. I make many arguments as to why. But but really, when you think about that, those decisions are made really starting with health. And, And so the opportunity here, I know, and you know, all these incredible brands, some of which I just named, why aren't they being sold and offered 
outside the borders of the United States. And so if you travel abroad, if you go on trade missions, which I've done with our own Department of Agriculture and with the state and, and others, and seeing the lack of made in the USA product outside our borders, you begin to wonder, where are the Americans? Yeah. And, and many people will argue a very solid point. Hey, we've been number one in GDP for how long? We have this incredible market. We're the world's number one consuming market currently, mm-hmm. soon not to be. But it, there's a good argument if you're starting a brand to start in America. And yeah. you've got a big audience if you want to do it. However, like I said, that's 300 million and being the 18th popcorn on the shelf when you could be Orville Redenbacher in Vietnam because there is no Orville Redenbacher in Vietnam. Exactly. Meaning the brand impression is available. When you look at these countries like China, where there's an opportunity to create a brand impression where one doesn't exist, what an insane opportunity yeah. when you've got a product that you know they're looking for because they too are looking for products they trust. Mm-hmm. And there's a great reason for that because in many cases, just like at one time we had, you couldn't trust or you didn't know how to trust. And when you look to China, where truly the greatest moniker in China is made in the USA, <laughs> believe it or yeah, not. Yeah, no, I believe it. Made in the USA, in their mind, means it has more compliance behind it than certainly made in China. Yeah. That's what they're thinking. So there's huge opportunities there. And so as Terry, my partner in Hoopla, and Stuart, who's been in China 30 years and, and doing export and importing to China, has offices there, um, as we looked to where's the natural opportunity to begin to offer some of these brands abroad, China became just a natural opportunity and why we decided Hoopla Global, our flagship store on Jingdong, JD, um, why we chose China to move natural, organic, sustainable, made in the USA brands and offer them to a Chinese consumer who is truly looking for them. Yeah. God, that's, I know that was a whole lot of information, but if you ever have time to take the consumer packaged goods class at Portland State with Craig, he goes into it and it's... It's wild to understand that we're so we think we're so far ahead in terms of technology and in terms of um, understanding our, our consumers, but we're not. We're so far behind. And just some of the images that I've seen in the, the grocery stores in China that have just you can like the milk example. I think is a perfect. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, you can only buy milk that was you know, it was just milked what seventy two yes, hours ago. Yes. So the milk you walk into the store and the milk bottle has a seven on it. And you think, oh, that's the brand. Seven. Great brand name. I don't know yeah. why you think it's a great brand name. <laughs> and you come to find out, no, that's not why it has seven on it. It has a seven because you walked in the store on Sunday. Sunday is the seventh day of the week. That milk with the seven on it is only on the shelf on Sunday in that store in China. There's no sixes from Saturday. And there's no ones beginning to show up for tomorrow, Monday, the first day of the week. Mm-hmm. Just sevens. And so in asking them, well, what do you do with the sevens left over? And they say, well, at 8.30, everything goes on sale and will still deliver it to your house within 30 minutes at half price. They don't have any sevens left. Mm -mm. And tomorrow starts the ones. And Tuesday is the twos. And Wednesday are the threes. And on you go. And that milk, when you grab that bottle, was inside a cow 72 hours earlier. America has nothing on that. I'm telling you, it's just, you know, we we are thrilled and should be about the opportunities Amazon Go of course. provides us. Because here yeah. we can just walk in, put our phone down on the scanner, walk in the store and grab what we want and leave. Mm-hmm. Well, in China, you just walk in and zap what you want and go home and it, it shows up in 30 minutes. They're like five steps ahead of us. Oh, way ahead. You can walk over to the seafood area, which is massive in any store in China. And the seafood's alive. And you can say, I want that Alaskan king crab in that store. I want that one right there sent to my house live. So you can cook it fresh. Or you can say, cook it in that restaurant, which also happens to be in the store. Mm -hmm. They'll cook it for you. And you can eat it right there or take it home. Or they'll deliver it to you with the rest of your order. How many square feet are these stores generally? I would say most that I've been in are probably in that Anywhere between five to 8,000 square feet. Oh. Not really large. No, when not you at think all. about it. Yeah. I was thinking like Costco size. No, 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 no. It's like almost, I mean, 
like co-op sized. Like yeah, there's enough or, room. Or you for... know maybe. Um, well, I could give references, but they'd be th- maybe only things you and I know because we're right here in Portland. Yeah. We're, yes. Go for it. But, well, I mean, it's going to be much larger than a green zebra. Yes. It's uh, going to be a bit larger than a World Foods okay. over here. Uh, it's going to be larger than a plaid pantry or a 7-Eleven, but it's certainly going to be much, much smaller than your average Fred Meyer or even your average Safeway that maybe doesn't merchandise as much as a Fred Meyer, yeah. uh, et cetera. So they're not, but I will tell you the seafood section alone is as big as a 7-Eleven. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, easily. Yeah, Ooh. easily because of just the, the offerings of seafood, especially in a city like Shanghai or Beijing yeah. or a tier one city yeah. is going to be that way. And I mean, there's so much consumption of it. Why, why not? I yeah. mean, I can't imagine what the equivalent of that is in America. Cheese, maybe? Uh, beer? Mm, beer, yeah. <laughs> beer. <laughs> yeah. And I think there's a lot of stores that do that well, but yeah. there's not that innovation. Like I'm not really, and this is something I've noticed kind of, as I've taken some of these CPG retailing classes, there isn't a whole lot of innovation in the grocery. There's there's like these minute details that we, we recognize and we say, okay, people are starting to eat well and buy well. But what does that mean in a concrete sense? Mm-hmm. So I think that's something that if people are interested in the grocery industry or just you know, maybe you're taking a CPG or retailing class, that is such an interesting concept to me. And comparing that to you know even places like Aldi in, in Europe and how the UK is approaching grocery, we're all on very different pages. Mm-hmm. And it, good things are happening. But I think yeah. if you mapped it out and saw the progress, we're so far behind. Mm-hmm. Which means huge opportunity. Exactly. If you're sitting in school right now and you want to change the world, what better way to do it than through what we eat, what we drink, what we purchase? If you want to be a part of innovation and disruption, there is no better place to be right now than retail. Mm -hmm. Retail is being completely disrupted, which means huge opportunities exist if you like change and like things that are constantly going to change and like going into something where as i mentioned today's or tomorrow's job hasn't been invented yet Mm -hmm. retail Mm -hmm. is a great place to be if you like solving people's problems retail is a great place to be because people don't have time Mm -hmm. and they want convenience Mm -hmm. and everything you and i have talked about related to what I do and what Hoopla does and what is uber convenience. Mm -hmm. It's all about convenience. It's almost a new definition of what convenience means. Mm -hmm. And so there's these huge opportunities to play. And then you get into, think about the technology side of it. Where's blockchain going to fit into that? Where's that technology, which is just really um, a bleeding edge right now, which will soon not be because it will be everywhere. Mm -hmm. So I can't imagine a more exciting place to be where you're definitely changing people's lives for the better. Exactly. Well, with that, I have a couple more questions for you. Some last, some final notes. Um, So do you have any advice for people looking to get into the industry? I know we just basically discussed why it's important to get into the industry, but maybe some tips for people who don't know how to, don't know how to create a network or um, are struggling to connect with people that are in the industry. Yes. I can tell you. And I, I say this in every class that I either speak in or even teach where I'm there on multiple nights, especially when we bring in guest speakers, mm-hmm. get their business card immediately hook up with them on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Um, know a bit about who they are. Do a little bit of homework before they come to class. So after the class, you can say, you know, I read that article on LinkedIn on blah, blah, blah. It really made me think, blah, blah. trust me, you will stand out. Um, I have, I can't tell you the amount of classes I have been in. And I'll say this up front and about me. And there'll be a stack of my business cards there. Maybe I'm just an not that interesting, but it's <laughs> shocking how few people like yourself who came up to me and asked for my card and wanted to get to know me. 
It's shocking how few people do that. Yeah. And, and part of that is they're shy. Don't be shy. If someone is taking the time to be in your class and speak, there's a network for you right there. There is a network and you can't fathom how many people they know. And you should think of every professor as either one or two degrees removed from someone who's going to change your life. Oh, yeah. And you should think of every guest speaker as only one degree removed, if any, yeah. from someone who will change your life for the better because they know someone. Trust me. And when you're in a town like Portland, Oregon, that is, excuse the expression, somewhat provincial, or everybody knows everybody, you really are only one degree removed from just about anybody. Mm -hmm. You can find your way in anywhere. Yeah. And so it makes no sense to me that if you spend four years in college, you should have a massive network. And you can have one after one year because the professors will immediately appreciate that you're asking, who should I, who should I talk to? Who can I interview? You don't need to go interview and say, do you have a job for me? Yeah. You don't need to go interview and say, you, you say, tell me, as you've been asking me, what is it about your job you really love? Mm -hmm. What is it that you really like to do? How did you find yourself there? You can spend 45 minutes of coffee with someone just asking them about themselves. They'll walk away and go, my God, that 19-year-old student just <laughs> spent an entire conversation not talking about themselves and talking about, I like them. How can I help them? That'll flip the millennial script. Uh, yeah. They'll just be sitting there going, how can I help? How can I help? How can I help? And that's what they'll be thinking about. Yeah. Because they will give you the time of day if you ask. Because believe it or not, not many people are asking. Yeah. And it's the one thing you should do. And then after they do, this is going to sound really old school, write a handwritten note. Yeah. It just so stands out. It's not that you can't email and you right. can't text. It's just you'd be shocked. You get that. It's so old school. It's cool. Yeah. It's and coming back. It's hipster now. Yeah, it is hipster. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, they cared enough to open a piece of paper, write me a note, put a stamp on it, mm -hmm. which ought to be a Portlandia episode, by the way. Put oh my stamp gosh. <laughs> I mean, and it's send true. It. No, yeah. it's one of those things. And I think, um, I wish there was like a pre BA 101 that like taught you how to act appropriately in a business mm -hmm. setting. Cause I think a lot of people, you know, they come in and for a job interview or an informational interview and they're like ready to have the job in their hands. And that's not what it is. Like you need to know the etiquette. Mm -hmm. You need to how, know how to approach people in an appropriate way, whether it's at a networking event or in class or like, you know, sometimes I, I see people that I've met in classes before, like out in public. And it's just that like, Hey, I don't know if you remember me, but you spoke to my class and it really made an impact. I thank you so much. That's all you have to say. Not only is that all you have to say, they'll never forget you. Yeah. That right there means so much to them. Mm -hmm. And it means because let's face it, that person could have gone home that night, sat with their glass of wine or their soda and had a nice evening watching the tube and relaxing after yeah. a very busy day, but they didn't. They came to the class. Mm -hmm. They spent their night at the class uh, because they really wanted to yeah. and they really wanted to share. And the fact that someone remembered something they said or that it had an impact on them, it made it all worthwhile. Just yeah. one. Yeah. Just one. Any of us who teach or speak in a class or do it, all our thought is if I could just get one person to hear one thing that made a difference for them, it's worth doing. Yeah. Well, with that... Craig, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. Is there anything you want to plug? Any interesting things that are happening for you right now? Any interesting businesses that you're into? Well, I'll only plug one thing, which is I did not, and I know some are thinking that, give up playing music. There you go. And I play in a Tom Petty tribute band, which, by the way, we've won the LA Music Awards two in a row for being the best tribute band in America. But aside from that, meaning we don't suck. So. <laughs> If you want to see the band, go to pettyfever.com. All right. And come see us if you like Tom Petty. And, and I don't know how you can't like Tom Petty. He's Brilliant songwriter, great music, and I promise we'll do it justice. All right. Well, there it is. Go see Tom Petty, a.k.a. Craig Osbo. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Today's show was filmed in Portland State University's Carl Miller Center. This show is brought to you by the Center for Retail Leadership, inspiring change through collaborative experiences between future thought leaders and industry to design the future of retail. For more updates on the show or to find out more about the Center for Retail Leadership, visit our website linked in the show notes. 
This podcast was edited by ThatCast Creative. Brand your business and connect with your audience with a custom podcast. Learn more at thatcast.com.